It's Midweek Media Watch with Colin Peacock. Evening, Colin. Hi, Karen. What about you? Are you an organ donor? I am, yes. And I, I hope I've got a few bits and pieces that might be of use in their current condition. I'm doing the best I can to look after them just in case. That is very wise. Yeah, indeed. So am I. But, you know, you do think, don't you, whether they'd be useful. Yeah, I should try and rank, you know, one to five, the top organs in best condition. In your own body? Yeah. Probably wouldn't match what a doctor might uh, diagnose, but I'll, Mate, I, could, I could try it. Yeah, okay, we'll do that another time. We'd better get on to <laughs> Midweek Media Watch. So the big big news story this week so far, serious issue, obviously, the funeral of Janak Patel and the protests over his death and the calls for action on on retail crime. Yeah, I mean, it's... Absolutely no wonder that um, the violent death of Mr. Patel sparked those strong uh, reactions and emotions. It was obviously, you know, really horrible to think of the vulnerability of people in that position in, in suburban dairies and shops. You know, p- people being killed like that in any local business, obviously really distressing. And what we know about the people involved kind of makes it all the sadder because we know he was a newly married man. He was only filling in in the shop. Um, the Herald on Sunday last weekend reported that the man accused of murder was uh, possibly deported from Australia earlier this year and had been in emergency housing here after arriving in the country. So I don't know if that's 100% accurate. I've seen other reports that say that might relate to another of the people arrested in in connection with this. So either way, I mean, there's there's the ingredients there for a very distressing and sad story. So absolutely fair for the media to report on it, uh, you know, a lot. Uh, It's a very rare uh, thing for this to happen. Um, But also to ask is, was this um, preventable with the failings, uh, you know, by the police or, you know, judicial failings uh, with the background of the the people involved here? So fair for the media to focus all that. Also, the funeral was a genuine event. Those street protests on Monday that targeted the um, government minister's offices, the closure of those uh, shops and protests around the country. You know, these are real events in communities up and down the country. Stuff even ran a, a kind of national live blog uh, on that protest. So, yes, completely fair that something as as distressing as this should be covered in the way that it was. But some of the media response to, you know, the high level of emotion has been pretty basic. What do you mean by basic? Well, just that, I mean, so much of it has focused just on those reactions and kind of what I think of as fairly unfocused demands for action, things to be done, not necessarily specifics or real solutions. So just as one example, uh, one interesting part that media have reported on has been uh, the slow progress of the measures were already underway, anti-crime measures that the, the government had budgeted for, for things like fog cannons and bollards and the security reviews of premises. Um, opposition politicians have pointed out the very small numbers of jobs that were actually completed or even assessed. So that's fair enough to report on that. That should be a focus of reporting. But I think it's been a bit drowned out, that sort of thing, by just the weight of people giving opinions and writing columns and, you know, broadcasters editorialising about it uh, that, that just really responded to the anger and the emotions. And just to pick out one, uh, this is from the, the early edition show, News Talk ZB's Kate Hawksby, who editorialises every day in the early morning. Uh, she blithely claimed on Monday robberies and, and violence like this uh, were because offenders don't fear the consequences. It's not actually as complex as the government would have you believe. Offenders commit crimes because they can. It's that simple. They commit the crimes because they can. They know they can. They know they'll get away with it. Tellingly, very early on in the Ram Raid epidemic, a teenager caught and interviewed as to why they did it. She said, 
because we know we'll get away with it. We do it because we can. And that was all you need to know. The complex is a word that they like to use at ZB, but you'd have to say that that's a commonly held view, isn't it, Colin? The consequences don't fit the crime, and especially with young offenders, and then that encourages what's you know now being called retail crime. Yes, yes, that has been said a lot, not just by her, so it might seem like I'm picking on her a bit, but look, all you need to know, I mean, that is far from all you need to know. The consequences of being caught... Um, for crime, a young person, they can be pretty life-changing even if there isn't a severe penalty handed out in the first instance. So youth justice, as we know, is a complicated thing. Um, and in this case, I mean, it just doesn't apply anyway because uh, assuming the reports are um, correct, uh, the people arrested in connection with this are not young. Um, Kate Hawksby also did what many people, including opposition politicians have been doing, you know, just sheeting this home to prime ministers and other ministers. So Kate Hawkesby criticised in that same uh, spiel, uh, she criticised the police minister, Chris Hipkins. She said that his uh, predecessor, Portal Williams, dropped the ball so badly she was moved on. There were hopes that Hipkins would toughen up on crime, she said. But sadly, under his watch, it's only gotten worse. But I mean, he's only been the minister for a very short time. And she went on to say, uh, government cheerleaders demanding that this tragic death not be politicised. I'm missing the point. It was already politicised, she said. Um, but, you know, then she went on to criticise the Prime Minister for, you know, carrying on with the scheduled visit to the Chatham Islands and not immediately rushing to the scene and the family. I mean, you know, who, who knows? I mean, if I was in that position, I wouldn't want a politician, uh, you know, coming to the scene immediately. And she did, in the end, of course, go to the funeral. So, I mean, I think a lot of that is just noise. It's kind of performative. And, you know, you've got one highly upsetting and very violent incident uh, which you know is not typical it is part of a pattern of crime and we know this what's now being called retail crime but that sort of stuff I think is just noise. I'm being facetious when when I say they like to use the word complex <laughs> they really think it's the, it's pretty simple um, so well, was the PM given a hard time by others in the media? Yes um, in her Monday round of interviews uh, I guess was kind of perfectly timed for that if you want to put it that way but uh, just as an example here's one of them this was the AM show on the TV channel 3 and the host Ryan Bridge that morning uh, asked the Prime Minister about this at length and uh, while he was doing it he forced Jacinda Ardern to watch um, a video of a violent shop robbery and react to it. They've got a knife to his neck and they're making off with about $20,000 in product. Ryan, forgive me, I can't see where the store owner, are they behind the counter? Behind the counter. And then they eventually let the store owner go Mm -hmm. and and he's Mm -hmm. moved on and out they go into a car, which you can imagine is probably stolen. Oh, and look, Ryan, I've had, you know, I've had conversations with those who have had these experiences and you cannot imagine just how frightening it would be in that moment. Yeah, so that... uh exchange followed a shop owner, a guy called Ash Palmer, who was on the AM show and he challenged the Prime Minister to, to go to work in a sort of undercover boss style and see how scary it really is to work in these shops, you know, with this threat of um, of, of robbery hanging over them. Um, and then Ryan Bridge after that went on to blast the, the police commissioner for not turning up on the show and giving an interview. But, you know, I, I almost sort of don't blame him, um, you know, if, if that's, you know, the kind of thing you know, they're going to be subjected to, to be shown videos and forced to react to 
them and, and blamed for every single instance. It, it, it doesn't really help, I don't think. But, but it was the big issue in the news to play devil's advocate because Cabinet, they were set to discuss anti-crime measures later in the day. So, mm. you know, why not confront the PM about it in her regular Monday morning interviews? Yeah, sure, absolutely. But, you know, the, 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 it then went well beyond this one incident, you know, which she was quizzed about specifically. So, for example, in that, in that interview, Ryan Bridge, the host on the AM show, went immediately into ram raids again and ram raid statistics, calling for, you know, harsher penalties for young offenders who re-offend, boot camps, ankle bracelets uh, came up. And he repeated that claim that, you know, kids get away with it. And then the Prime Minister countered and said, well, actually, you know, uh, currently with the rules as they are, 12 and 13-year-olds do and can go into the uh, youth justice system for aggravated robbery, which is something he he didn't appear prepared for. And she then went on to counter some of his claims about what Ryan Bridge said was a, a worsening state of affairs with violent crime and robbery like this. Let's actually talk about the facts. The number of aggravated robberies since 2017 in superettes and dairies has halved. Halved. It's around 10 and 13 for each. Okay, so what we've seen an increase in is burglaries, ram raids, where there aren't generally people present. That's where we've seen the increase. We've actually seen a decline across burglaries more widely. So people have started focusing in on shops. Now, there's a bunch of reasons Why for that. Why are the dairy owners so scared then? Oh, because they are being burgled. So I think that ends up being a really sort of circular argument where they're just trading claims and facts and figures there. But yeah, there is possibly an element of spin in what the Prime Minister said there. She picked 2017, which happens to be the you know the year Labour came to power, as the point where aggravated robbery uh, fell by half or has fallen by half since then. So I don't know if it's actually true. What she seemed to be saying there was if robberies and break-ins of homes are down, while robberies of shops, you know, the so-called retail crime is up. So is it just a transfer of this sort of violent type of, uh, of aggressive and aggravated robbery? You know, I don't know. But if the goal is actually to confront the crime that's happening, to prevent it, you know, to keep people safe, including, you know, people who are vulnerable running, you know, suburban dairies and shops, you know, that's a key thing, you know, the, the media could, could focus on. Um, so just, just focusing on the really visceral crimes and the outstanding uh, instances like this in, in the headlines, I don't think helps all that much. But Colin, if, if violent and cowardly exploitative retail robberies on the rise, shop owners are scared. Isn't it right for the media to focus on it and what the government's going to do about it? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, but if if they just amplify these calls for tougher action. Um, which they do, I think they also have to analyse those or, or, you know, force those who are making these claims to actually suggest sensible solutions. So just to pick one example, um, the Herald ran a story with a headline, uh, Retail Violence and Ram Raids are Cages in Dairies, the New Normal, and is Broken Windows Crime Prevention uh, approach needed. And that's a reference to New York City, you know, the approach famously tried in the 1990s, I think, when Rudolph Giuliani was the mayor. The story quotes um, National Party's police spokesperson Mark Mitchell as saying we don't want to end up like Baghdad or Johannesburg and and he said Mayor Wayne Brown should consider this broken windows approach uh, to policing and crime. But I mean, as the Herald actually pointed out in the story, to give it credit, New Zealand cities don't have independent police forces like American ones do. And, you know, there's actually the civic leaders like Wayne Brown and mayors, you know, they can work with police in their cities, but they can't determine policing. They can't 
tailor solutions uh, to it because, you know, that's something that's set nationally. So I think, you know, it, it makes for a good headline, you know, broken windows approach, which is one that often comes up when a sort of tougher uh, approach to urban crime is suggested, but it doesn't really... Um, it doesn't really help. It doesn't really add a lot of scrutiny. One little contrast actually was on Morning Report on RNZ National this morning. Matthew Tunison, the RNZ reporter, uh, spent some time with a shop owner who had all the security apparatus installed, you know, slept by the bed with a remote control which could set off the fog cannon, you know, from from his bedside. And that was a real eye-opener. That was a good slice of life that gave you a sense of what it's like to run a store where you do have that threat of violence and robbery hanging over you. That's sort of helpful. But, you know, just these claims for, for tougher action, you know, I don't think help. Can I just ask you, we've been talking tonight uh, about this question from Joey Dwyer from ZB to Jacinda <laughs> Ardern and the Finnish PM Santa Marin today. Yeah. What did you make of that? Well, I heard you. I turned. I was at home having family dinner. I turned on the radio at about 8 o'clock, I think, at the, your 8 o'clock intro. I heard you say, what do you think of journalists? If the audience oh, I thought that can't be good, and I wasn't sure what it was <laughs> you were talking about. But now I know from hearing that part of the program. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a silly question. In a way... Um, you know, it, it actually reminded me a little bit of it's a completely different situation, but um, the Pike River uh, press conferences where um, in the wake of the, the, the tragedy when it still wasn't clear what had happened, journalists were gathered around and there were some a couple of quite aggressive journalists from Australia who were giving a real hard time to the local police, the Tasman District um, senior police that were running uh, the operation giving the press conference at the time. New Zealand media reacted really badly to that and didn't like uh, in that situation of, you know, where it was sensitive in a tragic situation, asking really aggressive questions. With with this one, um, yeah, you, you can see the, the problems with raising that. You know, you, you're, you're basically looking at two, two politicians. I think the Finnish Prime Minister, did you not say, all there was to say was, you know, we're both prime ministers, nothing to do with age or anything else. Um, so, I mean, a bit of a silly question. I couldn't see the point in asking it. But in principle, uh, you know, asking unsettling questions of, you know, visiting uh, international um, prime ministers, not a bad thing to do. But in, in that case, I, I couldn't even see what he was driving at all. I did note that when the visit was announced, people did uh, almost in jest uh, say to the media, like, please, please, just because she's the so-called party prime minister of, of Finland because of the headline she'd been involved in, don't drag out those images of uh, Jacinda Ardern on the decks from years and years ago when she did a spot of DJing. And that did actually happen on, on News Hub at 6 tonight, I can I can exclusively reveal. Oh, did it? Okay. Mm. But it was really about um, the fact that, they, well, the fact, uh, the implication that they were females and you would never ask that of a, of a man. Yeah, I think that's that's fair enough. Um, and But I, I just, what, what's the what's the answer? What are you hoping to uh, deduce from that? You know, was this meeting only arranged? Could it, what, you know, what, what's the circumstance in which you could have got the answer that possibly the journalist was looking for? You know, yes, we're like-minded, we're the same age, that's why we decided to get together. I mean, that's not really how uh, international diplomacy works. So, yeah, couldn't really see the point of it. And I can see why, uh, you know, both prime ministers uh, felt uh, peeved by it. Perhaps it's angertainment. That's a, a new uh, phrase that you've um, come up with. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking about this. This is uh, Aussie Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull used this word. He wrote an article uh, as a result of the, uh, or as a response to the state elections in Victoria that were run by, uh, won by rather, uh, Premier Daniel Andrews. 
And uh, he was the target of a pretty substantial campaign by the newspapers and Rupert Murdoch's uh, News Corp chain. Uh, A lot of quite aggressive stories about him. Now, Turnbull said... Andrews won in spite of a campaign of what he called anger-tainment, so a steady stream of sort of beaten-up stories that were designed to make Andrews look bad and turn, make people angry and turn against him in the voting booth. And uh, uh, Turnbull was happy to say this did not appear to work out. The the campaign was futile. There was one story, the Australian uh, Media Watch program, their edition on Monday, uh, did a little item about this campaign. They didn't use the word angertainment, though, but uh, they referenced a, a, a Herald Sun, that's the Sydney uh, Daily tabloid paper, a front page beat up about a car crash back in 2013, in which um, it turned out Daniel Andrews wasn't even driving and wasn't responsible for. Uh, so it didn't work out. So I thought maybe Turnbull had actually invented this uh, this this term of angertainment, which I quite liked, but uh, it was used in reports of um, the U.S. midterm elections. There was a Repub- uh, a Democrat candidate in Colorado, Adam Frisch, who used it to describe the campaign of uh, Lauren Bobert, who was a kind of headline-making Trump backer and Trump-backed candidate, who was expected to win uh, in her. Um, in, in Colorado fairly easily, uh, given the, the results in the, in the last uh, presidential election. Uh, but in the end, it, it ended up being a pretty cl- close race. And Adam Frisch said that this was because of what he called the divisive brand of angertainment and seeding of stories targeting an opponent uh, that she ran. And when I was looking up to find the origin of this uh, angertainment, I happened upon a, a Californian punk band called Bunko, who had a song called Angertainment, which is actually very clever. Um, just picked out a snippet of it. Um, see what you think of this. <laughs> Bunko, you say. <laughs> Bunko is the name. Yeah, don't know a whole lot about them. Some from Los Gatos, California. But the, the song's actually quite clever. It starts out quite herky jerky and hard to listen to, and then builds up a bit and ends up with a, a bit of uh, a bit of a sort of thrash ending. But uh, no, the, the in the little video they've done with it, they've got all these various sort of right wing figures from cable news, like Alex Jones and people like that. And, uh, yeah, pointing at the sort of uh, fake news disinformation served up to people and how it triggers. Um, the social media and uh, the politicians seizing on it. So, yeah, it's, it's a pretty good piece of uh, media watch, political media criticism in the form of song. So, yeah, not a bad effort, Bunko. I'll check them out and see if they've got any more on the catalogue. Um, Colin, we've had what you call basic media coverage of the vexed issue of violent crime, uh, but you've also seen some more thoughtful local coverage of big issues that are facing us. Yeah, uh, in fact... The very biggest issue, if you want to put the, our very future on the planet and the threats we face, existential threats. So it's a three-part series called uh, Brave New Zealand World. So it's running uh, one a week on Prime TV. Uh, so it's in the middle of the run. There's, there, actually, there's only one more to come. Part two ran uh, last night on Tuesday. And um, it was made by Justin Pemberton, who just last month or even maybe only a couple of weeks ago, had a documentary in the Documentary NZ series on TV1 called Web of Chaos, all about uh, disinformation and uh, online misinformation. 
and he uh, teamed up with Rachel Curry, uh, who is the maker of a TVNZ program that screened uh, about a month or two ago. I think that was an eight-part series as well called How Not to Get Cancer, which was actually... uh, you know, not not a very attractive title if you, do, if you don't want to think about uh, uh, serious illnesses like that. But it was very imaginatively done. And so I had a look at the last night's episode of Brave New Zealand World. This was all about bio threats, which is obviously pretty timely, pandemics, bioweapons and so on. Um, and it was chilling. But uh, the final part next week, I had a look at that as well because that, that's uh, available on demand. And that's looking at the threats posed to us by... AI, artificial intelligence, and uh, advances in technology. And actually, the, f- the first one uh, last week, which I'd missed, was about um, climate change and the, the risk of nuclear war. That sounds heavy going. Do we have to uh, steel ourselves to watch the- these? Well, no. Uh, they're actually really, really watchable. And the interesting thing is that they, or the, the parts I've seen so far, have fairly prominently in them, you know, talking head experts, the sort of thing that, you know, has gone out of fashion a bit in, in current affairs. Um, but it's also intercut with really imaginative and fast-paced visuals. They even do some original animations. It would have taken a very long time to put these together. That makes them pretty watchable. Even at, at some points, it might be too fast-paced, too heavily cut for some people. But uh, there's lots of interesting archive, and they also do this thing, which is, I think, hard to do well, of making sort of uh, mocked-up news reports from the future. You know, when uh, the, the the temperature is tipping over 40 degrees and uh, one last night had um, uh, news reports on a, a fictitious news network called uh, NZN New Zealand News about uh, refugees from biohazard events overseas arriving on boats and being quarantined in New Zealand. And, yeah, hard to do because, you know, you, you ham it up too much. It, it looks ridiculous. Um, but on the other hand, if, if you don't make it dramatic, um, it just it just falls flat. So it's hard to do, and I think they did it really well. Here's a little bit, actually, that I picked out of the episode from this week, which... Um, was was part of the one that the main focus of it was on biohazards. Part of it was about those uh, super wealthy so-called sovereign citizens who popped up in the news a year or two ago because uh, some of them were coming here to build bunkers and wanted to use New Zealand as a, a uh, bolt hole from the apocalypse. We don't understand like power and our relationship to it. That's when the sort of myth, for want of a better term, of the apocalypse kind of comes into view. And it's happening now, but it's also like there's nothing new about it. There's a temptation to see like the genre of this moment as science fiction, but actually it's just history, you know? This is what human populations have experienced for all time. Oh, that was a, a quick cut there. Yeah. Oh, wait, where can we watch the rest of them? Um, yeah, well, I'm glad you asked me that because um, I got that wrong. In I mentioned the climate change episode, the first one in the series, uh, just in passing last Sunday on Media Watch because uh, Prime is owned by Sky. And I noticed that when I went looking for that episode one because I'd missed it on Prime, uh, the episodes only look to be available on demand on Sky Go, you know, which is the service for Sky customers and subscribers. And I'd said on, on Media Watch, this is bad because, look, we've paid for these programs via New Zealand On Air. They're publicly funded. Um, so if they're only on a subscriber-based streaming platform now, 
that's not good. They, they should be available to everyone, uh, not behind a paywall. But Sky and the program makers got in touch with us to say that's not right. So SkyGo is for Sky content for Sky customers and a paywall linked to their subscriptions. But it's also the platform now uh, for Sky's free-to-air content. So you don't need to be a Sky customer. You have to have a login for it. You have to register. So it's a bit like, um, say, 3Now On Demand or TBNZ+. Plus. You know, you have to have an account with them and a password and so on. But the content is indeed uh, free to view. However, the, if you go to Prime's website, where, where they did used to have catch-up programs on there and look for it, you won't find any um, Brave New Zealand logo at all. So I you know, kind of pointed that out and they said, yeah, fair enough. We, we, we'll actually stick one up there so that anyone who does go to Prime's website looking for it, clicks on it, will be taken through to the SkyGo site. But yeah, the, the moral of the story is you don't actually have to pay if you want to see it, but you do have to log in to... Um, to SkyGo, and uh, when you get there, don't assume that um, you have to be a Sky customer. Oh, good on you for following it up. <laughs> um, last time we spoke, Colin, you mentioned there was a possible strike uh, coming at Stuff Papers because the, their pay talks had broken down, and Hayden updated us on that last week. Any developments? Yes, so that uh, actually did happen today, uh, the first of these little two-hour strikes. So Stuff journalists walked off the job and picketed uh, their premises in Auckland, Hamilton and Wellington. The Herald site has a little video of Stuff at the, the Auckland office, hold, people holding up signs there saying Stuff pays Stuff all and tooting for support from passing cars so it looked fairly good natured but yeah that's um it's it's clearly uh, got to the point where you know they're prepared to protest outside their own offices about uh, the below inflation um pay offer that they've described as uh, insulting uh, the stuff uh Senior officers, senior executives say, look, they believe they're offering in line with what other media organisations have currently offered or are in the process of offering, you know, their staff, and they think it's fair enough. But I, I would like to give credit to Tom Polistrecker of the Dominion Post, the stuff paper, because he was the first to actually report this stuff industrial action in uh, the stuff papers and stuff website and gave a bit of detail about uh, what it was that was being sought and and offered. Uh, And part of it is that they want a bigger rise for people on the lower pay because they do have some lower paid uh, junior staff and reporters and journalists and, and, uh, you know, not so much for those on perhaps six-figure salaries at at the higher end. Is it all about pay, though, or are there wider problems in the company or, or the media in general? Yeah, well, that's part of it. I mean, there is there there is also uh, this reorganisation of regional news, which I think we've talked before, uh, that stuff proposed um, a few weeks back. That's due to begin this coming week. So fewer reporters in their regional newsrooms and more local news handled in other locations by teams of, of reporters. So, um, you know, the, the stuff have also uh, denied claims by staff saying that skilled staff are leaving the company because of management decisions or, you know, that pay problem. Um, but, we, you know, we've seen posters and flyers uh, prepared um, by stuff staff and, and their union, the main journalist union, Air2, uh, which kind of indicate that while staff management have been saying things about staff being all in this together and their mission of news, that um, they don't believe those statements have been uh, matched with uh, with their commitments to um, to the, the actual staff. But, yeah, certainly there are, there are also cost pressures on all media companies right now. COVID advertising money and support uh, is running out. Costs are rising uh, for all companies and, uh, you know, the cost of paper is going up way in, in advance of the, the cost of inflation. So it is tricky times, particularly for newspaper publishers. Well, I know you're not a sports journalist, but uh, football's got a chance of coming home. <laughs> England beat Wales 3 
zero. Uh, the World Cup, you're a football fan, so how's it been? Well, it has been interesting from a media point of view because it's in Qatar and they've compressed it into this winter break and it, it was a dumb decision to do it. But there have been four matches a day so far. They're coming to the end of that group phase, so it'll slacken off a little bit. Four is just too many. Uh, and they're all overnight our time, so you'd have to be really hardcore to do it. I had this uh, after the last midweek media watch I did with you, it ended at 11 and that was the, the final game of the day, it was due, so I just stuck around at work and watched um, Morocco-Croatia and then drifted home at about sort of one one thirty in the morning and recorded the games that are on Prime TV uh, free to wear overnight and then I heard the news bullet in the morning giving out the scores that, oh bugger, I recorded that Morocco-Croatia, I want to watch that when I got home and then realised that actually, oh no, hang on a minute I actually sat up half the night watching it uh, just hours earlier and completely forgotten the two teams involved. So that's that's how easy it is to get lost in it. On Media Watch, you, you looked at criticism of it being in Qatar because of human rights and workers' deaths and the corrupt process that actually led to it being played there. But it seems to have died down now the game's on. Yeah, there has been a bit of that. Um, but look, one thing that has, has been acknowledged, though, is that for all of the problems of having it there and the the corruption and the process that led to it. Uh, People in the Middle East, and there is a lot of football fandom in that part of the world, have actually had a chance to see matches in their region. And so when um, Saudi Arabia uh, played their matches, a crowd of uh, of 88,000 people uh, went to the biggest stadium in in Qatar for that. It was kind of ironic because they were deadly rivals of of Qatar until about a year ago uh, and they beat Argentina, so one of the epic upsets. So that was a genuine event, a genuinely rowdy crowd. So, you know, that's been something for... um, for the world to see that these tournaments don't always have to be, you know, in Europe um, or South America, you know, the traditional hotbeds and places where they're they're kitted out for such big tournaments. But with that in mind, there was an interesting, if we've got time for it, there was an interesting bit of uh, the Guardian's World Cup podcast where one of their reporters went into the crowd to try and talk to Saudi fans and ended up having a chat with uh, the, he was looking for female fans of, of whom he said there were there were many and he ended up talking to uh, Mariam who's a doctor who said she actually left her twins at home in Saudi Arabia to cross the border and go to uh, the Saudi game with with Poland and so what do you think a female football fan can bring to the crowd that a man can't civility (laughs) (laughs) fantastic um, well uh, females are needed everywhere yes we're 50% of our yes more than 50% of our country right yes she's an engineer I'm a doctor so we're already participating in our country fantastic and it would be amazing that we can also participate in rooting for our country in the World Cup and to attend while they are on a winning streak inshallah and hopefully they win and they have a very big chance to be the first qualifier to the to the 16th round it's just you have no idea this is the greatest day of my life fantastic guys thank you so much for your time good luck enjoy which, which, uh, the Guardian London. I listen to your podcast. I'm on the podcast, Paul McInnes. You had a picture with him? I was on the podcast last I night. I listen to your podcast every day. Wow, 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 oh my God, wow, that's wow. amazing. <laughs> that must have been a buzz for him to find fans in the stands who are also fans of his podcast. Yeah, he was pretty puffed up by that. He was just one of the sort of cast of Guardian reporters contributing to the podcast. But he wrote about that later, did, it, did an article about it, you know, praising uh, the Saudi spectators, the, the male and female su- supporters. But he said that, before the match kicked off, he went around handing out sort of business cards offering 
the opportunity to talk later on. Do you mind if I come back and chat to you? And most of the cards, he said, were just handed back silently by people who thought, yeah, this is a, this is a bit off. Uh, so culturally a bit, bit weird to be approaching um, women like that. Um, but Miriam was uh, highly willing to talk. Um, a few others did too. Uh, yeah, Paul concluded, uh, he said, much has been made of the means by which countries use sport to burnish their reputation, so-called sports washing, but there can be few more effective ambassadors for Saudi Arabia right now than their supporters like Mariam.